Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, thank you so, so much to all of the listeners who've read and supported my new book, Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls. I am absolutely overwhelmed, touched and stunned. Waterstones, Foils and Blackwells have some more signed copies available, as do lots of indies. If you call your local or check their website and send them a message, I'm sure they can sort you out. Some brief admin, on the 17th of February at 1 o'clock GMT, I'll be doing an Instagram live chatting about Insatiable with Book Bar UK. Also, on the 17th of February, I'll be on the new episode of the excellent Book Off podcast hosted by Joe Haddo. I'm going head-to-head with one of my favourite writers, Emma Jane Unsworth, and I'll be arguing about why Rivals by Julie Cooper is one of the greatest books of all time. Finally, if you like this podcast, I really hope you like my new podcast, Daisy is Insatiable. Every week, I'll be exploring the subjects of sex, love, desire and appetites with a different guest. My first conversation is with Dolly Alderton, and you can listen to our chat on the 18th of February. Listen out for an introduction to the podcast, which we'll be sharing with you all soon. We'll include a link to subscribe in the show notes, and you can search for Daisy is Insatiable wherever you get your podcasts. Now... On to today's guest. Patricia Lockwood is a novelist, memoirist, poet and the author of two of the Atlantic's best tweets of all time. I adored her dark, funny, gorgeous memoir pre-study about growing up in an enormous rambunctious family with a gun-loving father who became a member of the Catholic clergy. Her first novel, No One Is Talking About This, is many, many things – Autofiction, metafiction, tragic comedy, a love letter to the work of Nabokov, a love letter to love itself. We talked about Russian writers, problematic faves and pandemic fever dreams. Are there any books that you have read over the last 12 plus months that have brought you any sort of comfort or joy or escapism or lifted you from the state of things? God, that is a wonderful question. Yes, I have been reading like crazy, actually, because after I got coronavirus and forgot how to read, I was like, well, I better teach myself how to do that again, since it's my job. And it's also the thing I love most in the world. You know, if previously you're reading eight hours a day, and you can't do it anymore, it's not like I'm going to take up lacrosse or something at this point in my life, I have to figure out how to do it again. So I have been reading a ton of books. I recently really enjoyed uh, Marshlands, which was put out by the uh, New York Review of Books. I really liked also their reissue of The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington. Um, I read some Paula Fox. I read Desperate Characters and Borrowed Finery. I actually have an entire shelf of New York Review of Books uh, that they send me now, which is like this wonderful perk of my new existence. I think back to a time that I couldn't afford to buy books. And I think now that I get sent so many books that I can't read them all, and it's just this embarrassment of riches. Um, I did read all of the Patrick Lee Fermer books in some craze again immediately after I had coronavirus I wrote about this a little bit in the London Review of Books but yeah I've been doing a lot of reading specifically when I got sick I was reading all of the um, Map and, and Lucia 
novels, uh, which I really enjoyed. I loved your um, your LRB piece about sort of coronavirus and um, and fever reading. Um, this is, and also as a um, placeholder, at some point we've obviously got to talk about Nabokov. Um, and oh, bless, you're sick of talking about Nabokov, or or is that never, never, never ever. absolutely never, no. Um, but could you remind me of the series you were reading post COVID? <laughs> Oh, Patty Lee Firmer. Yes. So his uh, A Time of Gifts, um, The Broken Road, those novels that are about traveling through Europe, uh, backpacking really before the outbreak of World War II. And I have been reading a lot of those 30s novels and nonfiction books really um, since Donald Trump was elected, just to get a sense of that mood of the sort of incidental observation of people you encountering on the road and maybe you have a glass of schnapps with them and then they turn out to be nazis later you know a little bit deeper into the evening or you know seeing swastika flags flying outside of um you know beer houses that you're about to go in uh the berlin stories i think was really useful to me too uh right after trump was elected because you do have to remember that it happened before and it happened in the same way, that these postures were adopted as ironic and absurd and became entrenched, ingrained and violent. Those were helpful. It was also, I really wanted to read about travel. I mean, we were locked down and travel had recently become this field that had opened up for me in my life that I was suddenly able to do this. I was able to travel all over the world. I've been to Australia now, I've been to New Zealand. It's absolutely crazy. And the first thing that happened in lockdown is that I, I started having these incredibly vivid memories of those travels, just thinking about them all the time, dreaming about them, thinking about that mobility and when it would be possible again. So I gravitated to that sort of thing. But the Leonora Carrington was really useful because Down Below is really a, a memoir of being committed to an asylum. It's very short. I was able to read it in an afternoon. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone. And it has that voice that you see a little bit in The Bell Jar um, and even in something like I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, which is the, the very canny voice of the insane, the, the more sane than the sane voice, uh, the observation suddenly delusions, illusions are stripped away and you're noticing things as they are with no sort of softening light. So that was very helpful to me. I would highly recommend her books to anyone um, <laughs> feeling insane at the moment, anyone <laughs> feeling like they should be in an asylum or like they would like to be in an asylum, I recommend those. <laughs> I can understand the idea, I think, of, of the 30s. Really, really know what you mean about it being weirdly comforting. I was thinking, I guess, about mobility and that it was so hard to move. And know, knowing that in times when, you know, there is friction in a journey, that people will still make those journeys. Yeah. And I do note in the book the feeling that you are just living at the very tail end of the golden age of air travel that it was already starting to deteriorate toward the end i had flights where i was sitting on the tarmac for three hours and you were thinking you know we it, we had it going on for a while something's happening now it's not going to continue in this way I didn't think that it would be a pandemic uh, and people refusing to wear masks worldwide that would be the thing that really brought about its abrupt demise. But yeah, you already had the feeling, even just a couple years ago, that it's like, uh, yeah, no, that stewardess is going to yell at you. <laughs> like, There's a reason you need to be like traveling back to the bathroom to drink your vodka out of the Listerine <laughs> bottle. <laughs> Have you been able to remember what you read in a different way after being ill? Do things stay with more clarity or less? This is a fascinating question, actually. So I'm doing um, a critical review of Elena Ferrante, which has been wonderful. There's nothing better to immerse yourself in at a point where you feel like you've forgotten how to read because this, the sentences are very clear. They're very straightforward. It's that pile up of clauses that you can really follow. It provides the correct amount of speed and the correct amount of clarity. But I really had the feeling that there was a mark of delineation between things that I had read before and things that I had read afterwards. So I read her newest book, The Lying Life of Adults, after I had coronavirus and it felt very, very different than things I had read before. And I, as I reread the older books, the Neapolitan Quartet in particular, I felt like I was groping in my mind for places where I had previously left paragraphs and like, where did I store the memories 
of this book. And so uh, perhaps out of a kind of fear, I think that I was not remembering things as well. I started taking copious, even crazy amounts of notes, um, you know, uh, copying entire paragraphs out in my Moleskine. <laughs> I attempted to memorize things, again, feeling like I used to be able to do this, that I used to have a better memory of these things. I started uh, committing that atrocity on books that I swore I would never commit, which is to highlight things. I have this bright yellow highlighter and I am just striping across the page like a murderer. I never thought that would be <laughs> me, but it actually does help. So yeah, so I think I have made a greater effort to reread some of those books. Some of them I finished, didn't feel like I had a handle on them and just started back from the very beginning so I would have a better sense. It might be a sort of paranoia. I might be carrying it a little too far, but I want to make sure because it feels different that I am actually retaining these things. Again, this is what I do. If you do it for eight hours a day, you better make sure that you're carrying some of this stuff with you into the future. I think as well that combination of you being, you know, you being, you having coronavirus, but also living through this time when everyone's cognitive load is so much greater right. than it was. And that must be really, really challenging to work out, you know, what physically is a change in you and what is living in these times. Absolutely. And even before I got sick, I was having dreams about people I knew in kindergarten. My mind was searching back for, for old stimulus because it didn't, it wasn't being provided with anything new. Um, but yeah, I've been talking with people about this. They all say that their memories have been affected, even people who did not have COVID. And I think it's because we're just getting a lot less information. We're not having the sort of day-to-day -day conversations, even just with shopkeepers that we would typically be having. People are wearing masks. So half the information, half the visual information is missing from these experiences. Um, so yeah, I have started taking really, really, really extensive daily notes of, of what has been going on just to make sure that I can keep some of that with me because I know that I'll want to remember this time. I think that it's incumbent on us to remember this time. And you know, I, I sit down this morning and it's basically like, dear diary, what a day we had yesterday. You wouldn't believe what went on. You know, it's like you you want to remember at this point the, the site of the QAnon wolf shaman storming the walls of the Capitol. I need to remember that in the future, so I have to write it all down. A tweet I saw that really, I mean, you know, there, I think there are definitely much more sort of uh, like perceptive and incisive observations, but the one that stayed in my head was someone saying, I'm a screenwriter. I've written, you know, shows, movies where it's really, 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 really hard do you think oh like terrorists storm the building but yeah. how do they get in there you know it's impossible and it turns out they can just turn up yeah they can just walk in I saw that too and I, I thought it was quite percipient actually because no we have been <laughs> our entire lives people who write uh, screenwriters people who who work in movies and tv we've been working on the subtlety angle and apparently that was not what we needed to be doing the entire time we were working uh the tip of plausibility um <laughs> verisimilitude. It turned out we didn't need those things, that they were going to look very different in the future that we're currently inhabiting. But yeah, you see a lot of people talking too about how this is the last season of America, or it's like a TV show and the, the writers just gave up and, you know, they're not even trying at this point. And there is something that's, it's a little bit glib, but there is something about it where it's like when I'm watching Game of Thrones and like Littlefinger is starting to be too psycho or whatever, I can stop watching it, but we're all... I mean, we're moving throughout this narrative. Like we are the people who are, are populating this this fictional and non-fictional world. It's so true. And I think that uh, rightly so, people say often apathy is, that's what's going to kill us. We have to pay attention. We have to stay alert. But also I think we have to, so if we are apathetic, if we do just feel like we want to, you know, switch off and move, it's because we only have so much that we can all bear. Yeah. In a way, I think the more we know sometimes, the less able we are to act. I think that's right. And I, I do think that some of us are just burning our circuits out. Um, yesterday was the first time that I'd really been on Twitter in that old timey way since probably all Republicans got coronavirus um, back in, what was it, uh, October, November? When was that even? It was just a couple months ago. And 
feels very, very far away now. And I was just mainlining it the entire day. I was just, I went to get a haircut at some point because I have to do a photo shoot because I'm releasing a book and we're still acting like this is all going to be normal and that you have to get haircuts to do these things. And it was right, I think, after they had managed to breach, they had broken through the windows. I was watching Jim Newell, I think, um, a longtime politics writer. Uh, he used to write for Wonkat in various places, was inside and he was posting pictures, just like, what in the hell is happening here? You know, they're, they're, they're going to storm the gates. And I'm like, oh, I need to go get a haircut. <laughs> and then there was this 45 minute interlude where I'm being shampooed, everyone masked, of course. And, and, you know, these quiet murmured conversations going on around me about fascists storming the U.S. Capitol. I mean, I don't know how we would have experienced this influx of information previously. Um, I think in terms of the internet, something that is helpful for me is, is thinking about it in terms of shifts. Like you can take this shift and you might have to, you know, beg off for the next one. You're not gonna be able to take every single shift. Maybe it's like being senators or something and there should be term limits, you know, in, in terms of our internet use, because it doesn't feel like you can remain engaged to that level every single day. It must be so full on at the moment. I feel increasingly incoherent. All of these things are going to happen on Zoom. I love talking to people. I love doing interviews and I love doing events and I especially love reading to people. But it's, it's, it's going to be an unusual experience, I think, to do all of it over the internet, but it's also, I think, very fitting, yeah. right? To be doing this kind of weird tour where no one gets to touch me and like I'm in the same room as everyone in the world and the same room as only myself. So yeah, I, I, I think it, it is appropriate, um, but I do, it's hard sometimes when you are in lockdown to then have this normal chatty conversation where you just talk about the events of the day or a day like today when yesterday there's this, you know, uh, this coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol like, and we're talking about books. It's a pleasure to talk about books and it's a relief to be talking about books. But sometimes it just feels like, what on earth are we doing? Just sallying forth as if these things aren't happening. So there are these intentional oases, mm. I believe, where we can get together and talk about the things that actually matter to us while the clamor of the real world is continuing outside. No one is talking about this is very much about living online and capturing something that I think is so nebulous really we all live online one way or another and I genuinely think that it has there are other novels that have tried to kind of capture the times and that you've done that like no one else but I was wondering about any other periods of time of sort of recent history that you think have been captured well or written about well in fiction? I think we've been fucked since 9-11. <laughs> I honestly feel like we have not been able to write about things really as they were happening since that event. Something went wrong with the narrative there where we seem to be unable to enter it into literature in the appropriate way. I think because it almost immediately entered the narrative as propaganda. And I think ever since then, we have had difficulty doing that, which is not to say that no one's done it, just that these were absolutely momentous, era-defining events, and we haven't quite been able to address them in a way that it feels like we should. So something, writing a Twitter novel, you know, seems actually quite, like, flippant, ephemeral, like, why are you wasting your time with that? But that is where history was happening. Yeah. It really felt like that is where it was going on. Maybe not you know, four years ago as much as yesterday, but th there was the sense that, yeah, I mean, this is, this is where the story is happening. So you need to be able to write that down. We can't just go forth pretending that these new technologies don't exist. You know, that like no one is, is like using Facebook Messenger on their phone. These things have entered our lives and we need to talk about them. But it's also true that I don't read as many modern novels. Um, but you do take note of the failures, you know, people attempting to sort of like write about some guy who was, you know, on the 21st floor when the planes flew in and it, it hasn't been possible in a, in a way that feels like it should have been necessary, like we should have been able to figure out how to do that. I don't know, a book I really loved, I don't know if you've read it, is uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, Atessa. I did like that book, yeah, a great deal. And I think one of the things I really liked about it was a uh, massive spoiler alert. Um, if you're listening and you've not read it, um, pause it or skip. But <laughs> the way that 9-11 appears in the story, it's more of a sense, 
I thought of an ending of something and a watershed and being yeah. utterly self-absorbed in one way and maybe that being the 90s or being part of a certain demographic and a certain class in the 90s and being able to undertake a, an experiment of that sort of that level of indulgence and that ending and I like that it was a very close reading of something that specific I think you're right and I think the reason it worked so well is it was allowed to occupy a corner of her consciousness as opposed to the whole field mm. so I think when something like 9-11 happens you want to inhabit the entire event you want to basically be inside the plane you want to be inside the building at the same time simultaneously uh, and it's not really how it happened in people's lives it does feel a lot more real to treat it that way that you're on like clonopin in your bed <laughs> drooling and it's happening over here that this is the way it emerges into your life other than you are there any writers that you would love to see them tackling the internet novel the, the book about life online? Well, I do think that people like Darcy Wilder, um, Melissa Broder, I think a lot of people have written about the internet. I think Atessa definitely, mm -hmm. uh, people, people are writing about the internet and I think they're doing it more and more. But before it was kind of in America, almost an outlet thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like you were purposely like thumbing your nose at the establishment by writing about, again, such a trivial thing. And now it's like, no, we actually do need to pay attention to this and someone needs to be evaluating what's going on or even just um, sort of attempting to capture these, these group movements. Uh, I think that you will be seeing it more and more um, because what other choice do we have? I mean, this is, this is the hell we live in now, right? <laughs> we live more there than we do. In the other yeah. place. I was just wondering if you'd read the new Melissa Broder novel because I'm desperate to get my hands on it and um, hoping yet, for But I should hit her up for a galley. I actually should. I am reading a little bit slower now for for my essays. My typical books that I read for pleasure, I think I'm reading about the same speed. But what I'm doing um, when I'm reviewing is I'm so paranoid about making sure that I remember things and I'm highlighting all these sentences and things like that that it is taking me quite quite a bit longer. <laughs> And I'm not getting to read as, as many children's novels as I would otherwise uh, wish to do. But it's funny to come up with someone like Melissa Brett. A lot of these people like start out as poets or alt-lit writers and you see them from, I mean, someone like Roxane Gay, you know from the indie scene, mm. you know her like from very, very far back, just like helping people constantly, like with her hand outstretched to, to help other people and lift them up. Um, and so it's strange to see kind of what happens in the portal uh, when those people rise to prominence and other people don't know that history, uh, don't know that they were these sort of um, uplifting and enlivening forces in that old world. But yeah, it is strange if you've been around, I don't think of myself as being some sort of lifer or a person who's been around forever, but they're just, you know, people that, that you know from really, really way back, mm. back when all of us were struggling. And then you see, you know, people achieving success, like Elisa Gabbard, you, you, you know, she's like known for these wonderful essays now. And you knew her as a poet way back when, when absolutely no one is reading any of our poetry. Um, and it stretches back a long way and it does make you feel a little bit um, like you've been through something with those people. I guess we must talk about Nabokov. Shoot, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've written about this before and talked about this before, but I'd love to know, you know, when that relationship with his work started. It was very young. And I had an unusual experience where the books that were available to me were absolutely the books that you would find at Barnes and Noble. So I did grow up reading the canon in that sense, where it was like, those are the books that I could get. You know, if I'm growing up and I'm 14, I'm reading like Wallace Stevens and T.S. Eliot, it's because those were the books on the shelves at Barnes and Noble, like 101 Love Poems, right? So you could find Lolita in a bookstore. You couldn't find Panine at that point, probably in my Barnes and Noble, but you could find Lolita, you could find Speak Memory. Uh, Lolita, I probably read first, and I probably read Speak Memory when I was about 17. Just curious, but, were you taking these books home or reading quite a lot of them in Barnes & Noble first? No, see, okay, so I had to sneak books in. I, there's a curious fact about my mother. She will often tell me that she, quote unquote, believes in censorship. Like, uh, this is a lady who would burn books. And I don't know where that comes from. I didn't inherit it, and I'm very happy about that. But this is the way she was. And you would have to present a book to her that you had chosen in the bookstore during your supervised browsing period. And she would read the back cover summary. And if it said anything like sensual, 
passionate, anything about sex, you would not be allowed to get that book. So I, I'm thinking I must have found it in a library somewhere that I had been left there to study, something like that. That's, that's a good call. I probably did not get that one at the Barnes. <laughs> I, say, I have to ask, were there any books that you either tried and she disapproved of that you remember longing to read where she's like, no, you're not taking that out. And were, were there anything, any books that you managed to smuggle past her? This is a very funny story, actually. And A.S. Byatt should be really proud of herself. I was in, I think, a library limited and it wasn't The Virgin in the Garden. It wasn't Still Life. I picked up Babel Tower third of the series and somehow that got through and of course like the the story within a story there is completely about like a sadistic sex cult uh in fairy tale land and so i'm reading this so i think when you impose that sort of restriction on your children that's what ends up happening something truly perverse does slip through and the kid's like wait what in the hell is going on here <laughs> Uh, maybe you should have let me just read some Sweet Valley High books uh, <laughs> to figure out how boys and girls interacted instead of figuring it out from this. So that's the one that I really remember slipping through that really makes me laugh now where I'm like, seriously, Babel Tower when I was like 14 years <laughs> old. <laughs> I don't know, maybe your mum was sort of like, no, there's um, this world of, of Sweet Valley High is far too sort of reductive and conscripted. Let's go nuts. It was not like that at all. And my dad was this way too. My dad would come home... There's, there was a ritual. So you didn't get to choose anything that was on the television in our household. My father chose that. When he was away doing his priest stuff, doing his church stuff, you could sneak something onto the television. If he came home and caught you, he would freak out pretty much no matter what you were watching just because he wanted to turn the channel and watch like, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. So I remember having huge knockdowns, like, like screaming fights about shows like Boy Meets World, which you would think is the absolute most innocent like child sitcom that anyone could ever see. But I think even just the name of it, Boy Meets World, he's like, well, what is that boy going to do when it meets that <laughs> world? You're not watching that program. <laughs> so I was used to it. I did operate under those conditions from a very young age and it didn't seem strange to me. I didn't really sneak things. I didn't want to read stuff like Stephen King or V.C. Andrews, anything like that, like the other books mm. that kids my age had to sneak. I pretty much just accepted it, but it, it was always that, the, the, that's how it was in my household, yeah. And do you ever have those moments now where you read things and have that like, oh, I need to, oh no, I don't have to sneak it, I'm an adult. No, I think because I read so continuously and so insanely that I've left that up far behind um but I do think I think back and I'm like if I had a kid yeah if they brought VC Andrews into the house I might be like are you sure about that do you want to read that book so it's not like I don't think I mean there are books that you read when you're a kid that make a really lasting impression in a way that does not feel good that later when you grow up you feel like super icky about um but no that just the thought of like restricting your child's reading material is so foreign to me it would never even occur to me to do something like that. Um, that now I think it just seems strange, but maybe it's a good thing. Maybe you should feel like books are contraband, that you are sneaking it, you know, that, that this is something on the outside that you need to smuggle into your life. Maybe that's a good thing to give a kid, like not for the right reasons, but it's it certainly instills a love of reading in a perverse way as I experienced it. <laughs> I feel absolutely the same way. I mean, I, I did get my hands on V.C. Andrews. <laughs> I think yeah, my sweet Audrina walked me forever. What in the world? Also, as a, um, I mean, you know, my goodness, I, I have no regrets. I wouldn't be without her. But, you know, the sex problematic. Also, the plotting. And we're like, oh, oh, she's a ghost. Oh, they were turning the clocks the whole time. Oh, it's almost, you know, like you can imagine before you could sort of easily open a Word document and search out what you were writing and like check a birthday or check a generation or check the, you know, oh, like, oh I've used the same name. Let's make her the sister and the mum. Yeah, yeah. She didn't care about that. That was a different time. And something about her that uh, that I do you kind of admire this now is she was allowed to be so absolutely idiosyncratic. It's like, yes, I am going to write about brother, sister incest in an attic for 40 continuous years. Like no one's going to stop me. This is what I'm going to do. Here's like a weird rape scene. 
enjoy. Um, and yeah, I don't know that we are as much going to have that kind of thing <laughs> now or going forward. Not that we're losing a, a, a very great contribution, but you, you do kind of miss a time that a lady who was just kind of nuts about a, a couple of given topics could just go hog wild with no one stopping her. Well, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say and a point that's been made ad infinitum, but could you publish a leech today? Did you read My Dark Vanessa? I did not. No. What What was your take on that? I thought it was such a powerful book. I suppose it's kind of, you know, it's what, what grooming is. Her finding out as an adult that she was an unreliable narrator and that she had for her own safety, told herself this lot and the heartbreak of the love and the romance and wanting to believe in her first true love and she'd never got over her true love and it was it was an abuse. And I spoke, because I remember reading the lead and I think, oh, it's obviously, it's, it's the most astonishing, astonishing work and I love that book so much and it's just, it's a true like pleasure to read in every sense. But I definitely, you know, when I was, I guess I don't know if I would have been like 12, 13, 14 when I, when I found it and you kind of, you kind of want to be her you know it's you know it's a mess the whole thing's a mess but it is sort of a there is definitely a bit of me that was filing away like oh this is what men like this is what I must learn this is what I must I did not have the required objectivity for that book and I think that it is read by a lot of giddy precocious teenage girls who do not have that objectivity and I love the way that I think my dark Vanessa articulated something I felt in my marrow and not wanted to kind of delve into. I think it's also true that that Lolita is actually showing us how that process works as well. When you read it when you're 13, you don't necessarily understand it. I don't know that people at the time understood. And I do touch on this in the piece that he is paying such close physical attention to her Mm. you know someone's paying attention to that little tendon that's twitching on the outside of your ankle yes Uh, someone considering you a subject you you are like the fixed point of their attention and I think that's probably what you want when you are 12 or 13 and and generally neglected as a subject by the rest of the world overlooked in in that obvious way um, so I do think you you read it now and you understand what that is, but it's more fertile territory at this point to be like, this is what grooming felt like to me as a person who experienced it. That is not really a territory that has been as much explored. But yeah, reading Lolita now, going over it again, and you do hear the voice of Vera in this sort of coming in. Uh, if you read the interviews, uh, Think Right Speak, um, Strong Opinions, Vera will also, she'll come into the room and she'll sort of uphold Lolita or she'll talk about her in a way that makes her seem more real, almost remind Nabokov that she's real, that, that, she, that she seems very real to her uh, as a person. And that dynamic was very interesting to me. You know, I admit, I, th- I read Pale Fire a long time ago and I've always thought, God, I really must read him properly and I have not. And you make me want to it actually you and I hope this is a compliment it's a dangerous thing to say you and Nabokov kind of reminds me of Zadie Smith on David Foster Wallace interesting no that's an, a, a wonderful comparison I could only ever be happy to hear that but yeah I <laughs> I read Pale Fire the first time and I read it completely wrong. I just read it straight through and uh, didn't realize how I was supposed to be following the footnotes and had to go right back through and read it again. So that to me represents a kind of terror as well, uh, reading Pale Fire and, and realizing you can read a book wrong, yes. which I hadn't quite realized before that it was possible to do and just freaking out and being like, you're not on the level of that intellect or uh, the level of that 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 plan that he's setting out very, very often in interviews and rebuttals to critical essays of his work, he will talk with great denigration about, you know, people not understanding these books, that we were not operating on like the chess grandmaster level that he was. And it's like, well, that's true, dude, but you might be the only guy that can do that. You're the only (laughs) one who's in your, your own mind. Like you might be playing yourself. You're sitting across from yourself playing a game of chess. It's not necessarily the reader. That is yeah. precisely it, though, isn't it? Because you're a teen yeah. and you read this and you think there's a smart guy. And you, as you say, you feel seen every sentence, you feel seen. 
and you're like, oh, you think I'm smart. And then you re- read Pale Fine, like, oh, you think I'm dumb. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. You are playing the game with yourself. Yeah. 100%. So Pale Fire is a book that makes you confront your own inadequacies, but then also makes you think a little bit more about him and, and how he conceives the reader. Do you think your relationship with Nabokov has ways of evolving and places to go? Does it feel like something that's always shifting and in a state of flux or... Do you feel like you've resolved him? I don't think you can ever resolve Nabokov. Probably probably you can never do that. But it does change after you've evaluated someone for a critical essay, after you've read someone so exhaustively. Sometimes you don't go back and read them for pleasure in the same way because there's a fear that you might find something that you missed the first time. Or that might be true for me. So I have written sort of pretty exhaustive overviews of people like Carson McCullers, Rachel Cusk, Updike, obviously. These are very exhaustive things, but you don't always go back and reread those stories, those books for pleasure. An exception really was uh, Lucia Berlin, whose stories I really go back to again and again, and they seem to be free of that kind of anxiety that, that I didn't find the key, that I might see something this time that invalidates my entire thesis uh, of what I wrote before. I think Lizzie just, she makes me cry. Like, no, this is very, like, reductive. She makes me laugh. She makes me cry. But she does. I don't know a writer who uses humour like her. And, you know, it's so sad and beautiful. I ache, but I don't think she gets her the snaps of how funny she is. I know. And actually, I experienced this with almost all of these reviews. I'm always like, wait, does anyone know how funny this is? Sometimes I must just be making it up. Like, Ferrante is obviously not very funny. But there were definitely moments of the Neapolitan Quartet where I'm like, wait, this is rising to the level of, of farce, of satire. Her affair with Nino, this is, it's pitched at such an intensity that it does become funny. So I think when you engage lovingly with a person um, and you are really reading that deeply into someone, you find those things uh, where other people don't. But yeah, she was she was for sure one of them where it's like, wait, do people know this about her? Is Have they seen this side of her? Or is there this received notion of what her writing is like? I think that honestly, she was so underappreciated and she flew so much under the radar until... Um, until her two story collections came out and were, you know, completely reevaluated and she was paid much more attention. I don't know that there was really a crystallized narrative about her or some way that we spoke of Lucia Berlin. So the reviewers got an opportunity, I think, to uh, discover their own version of her, which is not always possible. It's not really possible with someone like Nimbokov. There's been mm. such a great weight of writing about him. Uh, and, and people, thinking marvelously on the subject of him. There are people like Updike in the book up that really inspire people to great heights of writing when they address them. And you're also contending with that. You're not just contending with the author when you review those, those people. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Patricia soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. 
The Panic Years by Nell Frizzell. How do we know when to stick and when to twist? Can we ever know ourselves well enough to make the really big decisions? And who will make them for us? Did you read Motherhood by Sheila Hetty and feel your head and heart exploding and long for more? Then you need The Panic Years, a thorough, thoughtful and beautiful exploration of womanhood, adulthood and humanity. It's published by Bantam Press and it's out now. Now, back to Patricia. What are the books that you've read that you feel that you've been able to read and enjoy with the most space? Is there anything that comes to it where you're, you're glad that you didn't know so much about the writer? Well, I mentioned Marshlands, <laughs> which was wonderful. And I hadn't read, I haven't read The Counterfeiters. I haven't read a, a great body of his work. But there was a moment where I wrote in my journal, I was like, this is such a wonderful book. And then, of course, you look up the Wikipedia entry and you're like, wait, this guy is like a pedophile. I didn't know this. And you encounter, you know, in the Wikipedia entry, uh, like this section that's like sexuality and, uh, you know, things like that. You're like, wait. So there was this this entire background of this person that I was completely unaware of. You feel like you're discovering a book in the moment. And then the way the modern Internet operates, you're immediately confronted with the ways in which this person is a demon. So I think that being uneducated, not being a person who went to college, um, really stumbling on people by happenstance and just being allowed to think my way through them and not in the traditional way. I don't think that I read books or think critically about people in a traditional way. I think it's unusual. Um, I, I, I feel that I came to all of them fairly, fairly freely. I did work a little bit on Rachel Ingalls about two years ago for a potential review that unfortunately I never finished. And she was a person where so little had been written that you did just get to absolutely discover her. I, um, I've I, never read her, I'm afraid. Tell oh, me about her. Oh, read everything. So you should read Mrs. Caliban. But also she has these collections of novellas that are just absolutely fantastic. So I was working on a piece um, about Binstead's Safari. And there are these wonderfully mundane supernatural books. They're just absolutely fantastic. But she had been so neglected. I'm not glad that she was neglected, but she had been so neglected that you you were able to feel like you discovered her, like you discovered everything about these these books that she had written that were just like lying underneath an inch of dust in like where the canon was concerned in the great library of Babel. You know, these books had just been neglected. It's so weird, isn't it? I think with, you know, the intimacy of reading and that tension between like I want everyone to know about this and I want yeah. to feel as though this is for me and only me yeah 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 I think I have that um but I also have this strange feeling as I said I do read unusually I taught myself to read when I was very young and I think I just did it as a sort of pattern pattern finding exercise like I I could read the words but I don't know that I was necessarily able to attach meaning to them in the way that a kid who was older could have so it was like I was I don't know kind of loose in a a visual field like it was a visual exercise for me so I've always felt that I read differently that I would go through entire books sometimes not even knowing characters names or very important plot points that happened you know I would read a mystery and have absolutely no sense of who the murderer was as soon as I closed the book but I paid um microscopic attention not just to to the line but to the word and even to the letter so yeah I I was always conscious of reading in a different way and I've been very privileged to be able to write from that point of non-education of ignorance of reading differently um being allowed to do that I think has has been good for me but maybe also for you know the way people write reviews as well because there is such a traditional way that we do it and there is I think we think of there being just one kind of way to read and there's not. I think you're right. And I think that um, this idea that reading has got to be somehow sort of difficult and challenging and it's very like worthwhile hobby. And I think that's doing it a a great disservice. As you say, it's that read like your mum is going to take it off you and say you can't have it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like you're snatching this from the jaws of someone who's trying to keep it from you. Um, I think that's exactly the way that we should do it. And I think, too, there's such pressure to read the canon as mm. well that you don't feel if you don't maybe go through like a university literature course. Like a lot of what I read now is still kids' books. And I really like kids' books because they're written in such a way that sometimes 
the author realizes that this might be the first time that a child encounters this word or this concept or this kind of person. And there's something very elemental about that that I go back to. I mean, if I had read the Sweet Valley High books growing up, I probably would return to those instead of like the kids' books that, that I read now. But yeah, I, I've never had the sense that I should be like, only tackling the greats. It's like also those little dusty corners of um, overlooked literature and devalued literature as well. Mm. Children's literature is, is often very much devalued. I'd love to hear more about the, the kids' books that you've been reading and enjoying. Oh, so I'm doing All of a Kind Family now, and I really love picture books. There's a wonderful picture book by uh, Laura Siegel, who also wrote some wonderful poets' novels for adults. It's called Tell Me a Mitzi. I have my Laura Ingle Wilder over there. I've got my Ellen Montgomery over there. I've been on a huge Toba Janssen kick. Enormous Toba Janssen kick. Are you a fan? Absolutely. Of... Yes. Now, that is one area where I feel freaking cheated because we didn't, those, I, you would not see those in a Barnes and Noble. I didn't come to those until I was an adult. I didn't get to read the comic strips or the kids' books, and that does make me angry now. Um, I had my Madeline Lengel over there. I had a sort of revelatory reading experience going back to The Secret Garden, I think about a year ago, and finding that I really wanted maybe to ultimately write a piece about you know, climate change as viewed through the nature worship of, of a book like that, of a book like you know, Anne of Green Gables, where she's like basically having sex with cherry blossoms, you know, these extensive and what we thought at the time were really boring descriptions of nature, changes of the seasons and coming to them now and feeling this this nostalgia really for the end of the world attached to them. But an Emily of right. New Moon is kind of almost witchy in her it relationship with Hell, yeah. And she's quite frank about the sort of like the pagan element and sort of terrified but enthralled by it. I love that so much. And I remember being quite, because I was brought up, I mean, that's why I loved um, Dismal Gushing. Um, you know, I adored and loved, no one is talking about this, but Priest Daddy. I am the eldest of six girls and we grew up in a super strict Catholic family. No, um, oh. no, no people of the cloth, but it was very, very strict and religious and you had to sneak a lot of things. Because my mum loves... Ellen Montgomery, and she's been reading all her diaries and whatever she can get her hands on. Yes, but that's her saying. You know, here is Emily of New Moon, and you will love her. You're not allowed to love her as much as Anne, obviously. But um, being a bit confused about, oh, I thought this was really not okay, but maybe this is okay. This otherness. Yeah. Oh, I definitely love Emily of New Moon more than Anne. Yeah. Like Anne is spending too much of her time eating caramels and things. I was always, always an Emily of New Moon partisan. And it's interesting because I thought when I read those books that this is just how poets behaved. Poets and writers that they had this like mystical connection with like the freaking, you know, New Moon or whatever. And then you realize it was a function of its time. It was, you know, the Edwardian era or it, it, it was like this Art Nouveau period where women were like wandering around in these jeweled headdresses, you know, like appropriating various things from Eastern Asian <laughs> cultures, Which, just like running around like crazy genies, basically. <laughs> kind of brings us right back to Map and Lucia. Yeah, it really does. Um, and those are so satirical. Really, there's almost, I don't want to say that there's almost, it almost rises to the level of hatred at certain points, but that's a revelation to see um, a writer sort of treat his subjects in that particular way. And those were the books where I sort of realized that I had coronavirus. I was reading the first one and I was going along and was really enjoying it. And I got in the second one and I was like, do I still understand what is going on with these characters? And it kind of came in upon me. So I'll be revisiting those as well. But yeah, you do. And again, there are things in them now that would not be okay, but I think we're extraordinarily um, pointed against the people who are enacting uh, these, these thefts <laughs> and these performances, uh, these cultural performances. What do you think is the best book present you've ever given anyone? Are there any book gifts that have really delighted the recipient? Well, I have introduced many people to Tell Me a Mitzi. Um, there's also a Tommy de Paola book that I really enjoy called Helga's Dowry uh, that I've given to quite a few people. I like to give the favorite Tales from Grimm that was written and illustrated by Mercer Mayer to people. A lot of these are kids' books. 
But honestly, when I get enthusiastic about books, I just start giving them to everyone. I don't know that I really consider whether it's appropriate or whether the person will actually like it. It's like, this is what I'm reading right now. You're getting it for Christmas. So F off. (laughs) (laughs) Do you um, ever read any kind of crime or mystery or anything no it was very funny i was having a conversation with my lrb editors and they were like do you want to do patricia highsmith next uh, to speak of patricia's and i was like okay so i've read the price of salt because it was the lesbian book and i'll read any lesbian book especially one that's set around christmas um but (laughs) otherwise no i don't think that i would feel capable of tackling that i mean you know how some people have face blindness and they can't like recognize who people are really just from facial features. I have that, I think with plots and I'm like, I just, did, what is, what does Ripley do? Does he kill people? Like there's no way that I'd be able to write a coherent review of that. No. And I never read romance novels either because I was always like American romance novels can be very weird. First of all, they can be quite rapey. Other times it's like, I'm, you know, quite, um, exoticizing I think of of certain groups uh and that gets a little bit weird as well but then there's also these strange elements where it's like a cowboy for Christmas or the sexual widow that I came to love at Christmas like and there's always like the child is in some way part of the courtship act where it's like some (laughs) little kid is being cute and that like makes you want to fuck the guy even more I have no idea how these things work so there's a kind of like literalism in me where I'm like well no I wouldn't read that I'm not going to read about two people like getting stuck in a a garden shack in the rain so that all their clothes are wet like it just does not work on any of my buttons (laughs) so I I missed out on some things, I think, not really reading genre books. And I tried to come a little bit more to like fantasy and science fiction as an adult, but I don't know, it didn't it didn't work for me as much. Maybe I had gotten poisoned by official capital L literature too early. I have been rereading, um, and I say rereading, and I'm I'm not ashamed. I'm a little ashamed to tell you. Plum Sykes, the uh the debutante divorcee. And I thought that is my sort of that is my cosplay fantasy realm. The terror, like Manhattan, too much money. It's two thousand and five. Well, I know that's sort of post nine eleven, but you know, no one believes that anything bad has happened, and everyone's entirely superficial. <laughs> that is my fantasy land. Yeah, and it it exists, and it's like, well, I mean, like the Iraq War is going. You know, there's like you think back, and you're like, that really seems like a halcyon time that was not a halcyon time. Um, I mean, certain people thought of it that way. I had I got one of her books on my Kindle one time. I think it was actually when all of this um, family tragedy was happening uh, with my sister. I I was trying to read light books, and I think I came to the eventual conclusion that I just was not really cut out for light books. Uh, I think I read the one where she was at Oxford. It's like, oh, I don't care who did it. I don't really care who committed this murder. I just couldn't make myself get into the spirit of it, which I think is sad. It's kind of a a joylessness. Like I also don't really enjoy sports and other things yes. that other people really like and get a lot of pleasure out of. And I don't feel snobbish about it at all. And I wish in fact that I could enter into the spirit of those things as well. But I'm like, I'm honestly never gonna care who the murderer was. It's never gonna <laughs> that's never gonna get me. I think that's the tricky thing though, isn't it? Because I know it is not fashionable now to say that you want to like the characters that you're reading about, but I do think you have to like them in a way of at least caring what happens to them and if you cannot get it up for the story then where'd you go yeah yeah and it's true and when I was reading Ferrante and I felt myself really being carried along the question was was I being carried along by plot or was I being carried along by by the speed of the writing this this piling up of, of clauses that I noticed um and I went back to them and I was like actually I don't remember some of the really main plot points in this book you know like people who committed suicide people who had a fair with other people I didn't remember a lot of it but I was carried along by something that, that felt like tempo or that felt like her really really entering into the writing of this book you can tell when she does it uh and I was just carried along with that but I don't know that that's the same as enjoying mm. plot or <laughs> I think that's so interesting because I always I feel definitely with the Neapolitan quartet like almost like she's holding me back like I want more and she's like no I've got to give you these details there's a rhythm this is my metronome you're There's not skipping rhythm. ahead you're rocking back and forth and that's almost how I feel when when I was reading them and I always stim a little bit I'll like um I'll, I'll write words that I'm reading with my finger like on the corner of the page and you almost don't do that at all when you're reading her because the tempo is such that you're really really caught up in it 
Um, and I don't feel that way at, at all. I feel almost like they're over explicated in a certain way, or like I, I would read them and I would think that I was having these wonderful insights. And then like 200 pages later, she would just come right out and say, it, and it's like, well, okay, <laughs> like maybe, maybe too much is being given. Um, or maybe I'm not used to reading that kind of book. You know, these, she talks so much about being influenced by photo novels and, and that's a, just a genre that I, I would never, I, no, had had no sort of interest in whatsoever. So for me, these books are my experience of of that genre. I know you talked about reading the li lying life of adults. Uh, for some reason, I struggled with lying life there. It's too many L's. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a hard title. But the other books um, that you read before, did you find that your feeling about the writing changed from book to book. So yeah, and I do, I, t I will talk about this in the piece, um, that there are ones that you feel very, very strongly about that you feel are particularly yours. And for me, that's The Lost Daughter and The Days of Abandonment. And actually, have you read Frontamalia? Um, I have not. I cannot recommend it strongly enough. And hopefully I'll get to write a whole ton about it in the essay, because that was just an exhilarating book. I loved it so much. But um, so she did an interview, I believe, with the listeners of a program called Fahrenheit. And uh, she it addresses at other points in the book as well that people actually thought that different people had written Troubling Love or The Days of Abandonment, where it seems to me so much of a voice, so clearly written by the same person that I thought that was absolute lunacy. I was like, how could you ever think that these books were written by different people? Like that seems very crazy. But yes, totally, totally read that. I think it's criminally underread. You'll, I, I promise that you will enjoy it. I am very, very excited about that because you're, it's such a, I, mean, I, I think a lot about the, the claustrophobia of those novels and the, I don't know, the heat and the dust and the fractiousness of that relationship and how, when I, I think I came to them in a very sort of, you know, basic bitch way when everyone did. And it's like, oh, lovely novels about girls being friends. Aren't they lovely? And I'm like, no. Yeah, that's actually, it's a crazy thing to say about those books. Yes. I think that I, I hammer that point quite um, uh, strenuously. I'm like, no, that's that's an insane thing to say about these books. And I think they're tremendous depictions of, of friction, friction mm. between people, people bristling against their age, against the technologies of their age, against the oppressions of their age. They're such big books that, again, when you turn to the back cover and you're like a stunning, rich portrait of a friendship, you're just like, what in the hell are you talking about, dude? <laughs> they're that as well but they're they're also i mean these are these are macrocosmic novels oh. and they're also about especially if you are a woman they are about the people who disappear from your life yeah. i mean we i have had those friends and they did seem to be my most brilliant friends they did seem to be the the geniuses of the age who went away they're not anywhere to be found now where are those women you know what i love in your books is the way you write about family and that sort of you know cliche of like the sort of they're there no matter what and it's like, but they really are it was really really fascinating I think seeing you know and I'm so sorry about everything that happened with your sister but knowing her from pre-study a little bit and having that that glimpse that so much can be sort of told about a person and who they are and how they evolve and that amazing picture you described that you take of her she looked naked with is it a cubs hat it's a bengals hat now american listeners will know that the bengals are a much worse team than the cubs <laughs> the bengals almost never win and it's sad because the bengals are truly like my family's team my dad has cried when the bengals have lost and they always manage to lose in some spectacular way they're doing better than everyone expects and it's fumbled just at the very last moment and then my dad cries so something like that too you inherit your your family's just foibles their their histories but also their losing teams you know like you're a bengals fan forever just by virtue of being born into the city into this world into this family <laughs> Can you think of any fictional families that you'd either, you can feel yourself belonging to or that you would have hated to have been born into? Well, whenever I read Nancy Mitford, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that is my family. Uncle Matthew, that is my dad. But then also my family and other animals, uh, reading about the Durrells, I, I feel that as well. I think people thought that the way I conveyed my, 
<laughs> my childhood memories was um, heightened or fictionalized in some way. And I, my husband's like, you toned that shit down. People have absolutely no idea about what isn't included, about the things that are just direct quotes. When I was living with my parents, I was writing these quotes down directly uh, on on a pad of paper so that I would just capture the syntax, that, that, that real quality of them that I was like, certainly if someone reads this quote, they'll understand that a person said that. In reality, everyone was like, wait, all this is made up. It's like, oh no, very, very far from it. Uh, my dad is Uncle Matthew. So <laughs> As is mine a little. And that and I remember that the the entrenching tool on the wall and really feeling that sort of but well, yeah. we don't have an actual entrenching tool, of course, but I can hair, tufts of hun hair on the yeah. I think either your dad is Uncle Matthew or it's Uncle Davy. I mm. mean it's either the that extreme like weird vegetarian who is having like dietary restrictions uh, dictate all of his meals. Or it's the guy with hun hair on the <laughs> on the tool that's hanging on the wall. Yeah, I mean, you might have more to write about if you're if you're a person like us. If you do have the Uncle Matthew as the dad, but it's not what I would call comfortable. <laughs> it's not a comfortable kind of a childhood or or father to have, particularly. I mean, I don't know whether it's um, reductive and untrue and um, heteronormative if you have an Uncle Matthew for a father. If you look to fall in love with an uncle Davy and vice versa that's probably I did fall in love with an uncle Davy that's what happened to me I ended up with some the weirdo who wants the brain sensing headband for Christmas and <laughs> he's gone through the strangest periods like sometimes he'll drink like four gallons of milk a day other times he's completely vegan this is a really good point I think that this is a tremendous insight that we've had yeah I went directly from the arms of uncle Matthew into the arms of uncle Davy <laughs> uncle Davy is so kind and it's him Showing up in Paris and making gentle fun of the goldfish in the bath. Yeah, so, I mean, when I read those books, I think for some people they're so absurdist and they're an escape in the sense that you would, you never encountered anything like that. To me, it's just very homey. It's like, oh yeah, no, it's like psychos, wall to wall. Your dad's hunting you. Yeah, no, I know what that was like. I, I remember all of that. But also the sense that everyone in your family was an original character, um, I do write about my sister in Priest Daddy that she is really much more original than I am, that she is like an actual character, that she is an eccentric. Uh, it really is a family of old school eccentrics, I think it's safe to say. But yeah, the writer is never the the true, it's never the craziest one in the bunch. I mean, you've got like unity over there. You've got, you know, like <laughs> there's somebody crazier in the Midford family. Um, it's not Nancy. <laughs> it is so true. Did you read um, Jessica Midford's uh, yes, memoir? It's right back over there. I keep like pointing, like you're going to see my bookshelf. I'm like, there it is. And that's so great because you really see the family split where it's like you, you have like these socialists and these activists and these muckrakers. And then you have Nazis over here. Like what happened? I think that, that those are the two logical outcomes maybe when you are raised in that kind of extreme environment. Um, most of my brothers and sisters have obviously gone to the more liberal side. Uh, but it does feel like a numbers game at a certain point, you know, that some people are going to end up on, on this team and others are going to end up on the other. If you were to send me and the listeners off to discover some underread contemporary poets now, what directions would you send us in? Oh, boy. I actually just, when I had COVID, <laughs> uh, helped judge a translated book contest. So the majority of what I was reading this year actually has been um, translated work. And I did kind of fall a little bit out of the contemporary poetry scene, and I'm not reading it as much. But I, it would be, I think, people who are, are fairly widely read. People like Ada Limon, uh, Denez Smith, um, certainly people that you've heard of. But then also, I think the people who become a little bit more famous, like Melissa and Elisa, I would tell them to go back, you know, and, and look at their old work and like maybe read their first, the first books that came out, you know, like my first two books are poetry books. And those to me are represent like my struggle of the time that I was really attempting to to rise not just to some sort of prominence but just to being seen. I'd love to ask are there any coming books in 2021 either about to be published or just books that are on your pile that you're excited about? Well again I don't read as many contemporary books as I should but I do have Kristen Arnett's new book uh with teeth on my pile right now um of course whenever anyone asks me a question about forthcoming books I'm always like what's a book I don't know I've never read a single <laughs> author in my life um but I think I will try to read some more contemporary authors this year just because 
honestly, people, if you can like support writers right now, it would be a really good thing. People who have released books in the past year, it's been quite a bleak scene for them. So yeah. All of just all of the books from 2020. <laughs> yeah, just get them all. Even if you feel like eh, maybe not that one, just grab it anyway. Give it, put it in a little free library later. Do you have those in the UK? You we have do. little free libraries? Yeah. <laughs> I keep wanting, I've been going through, I don't know if you can see all those cool. stacks down there. I've been trying to like weed out my bookshelves and give some things away, but are you supposed to give books away right now? Like, do you want to like give people a case of COVID through a, you know, a, a copy of something that you don't want? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's fine if you sort of, you leave them or- Let them, let them sit for a couple days. Them. Just get the COVID off them. Let the COVID get old and it'll be fine. <laughs> Huge thanks to Patricia. No One Is Talking About This is out on the 16th of February. That's tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it goes out. And it's published by Bloomsbury. It's lyrical, challenging, wholly absorbing, vulnerable and ambitious. I loved it. I think you will too. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It helps new listeners to find the podcast. Find a list of all of the books mentioned by Patricia at acast.com booked and you can check out her selection in our bookstore on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from Logan Purcell Smith. People say that life is the thing, but I prefer reading. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 